I'm in busy downtown Belfast on a Saturday morning. Votes for the assembly election, which took place two days ago, are still being counted. I'm about to go into a solicitor's office to interview an expert on constitutional and human rights law about that very contentious instrument, the Northern Ireland Protocol. This time, it's not the controversial trade provisions in the protocol that we'll be discussing, but the provision that ensures the continuation of European Union human rights law in Northern Ireland. You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All comments are current at the time of publication. It's a podcast that's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. And this edition is presented by Rosalind English. Before the UK left the European Union in January 2020, the government committed to ensuring that certain equality and human rights in Northern Ireland would continue to be upheld after Brexit. This commitment was set out in the Ireland-Northern Ireland Protocol to the Withdrawal Agreement, reached with the EU. Most of the controversies have related to the trade provisions in the protocol, but today we look at Article 2. This provision commits the UK government to ensuring that the protections currently in place in Northern Ireland for the rights, safeguards and equality of opportunity provisions that are in the Good Friday Agreement will not be reduced as a result of the UK leaving the EU. This means, for example, that the Northern Ireland Assembly and the Northern Ireland Executive can't act in a way that would reduce certain equality and human rights in Northern Ireland as a result of the UK leaving the EU. Elections to the Assembly took place two days before this episode was recorded. Here to discuss this with me is expert in human rights and constitutional law in Northern Ireland, Anurag Deb at Queen's University. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us at Pod UK. Let's just start with the results of the Assembly elections. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. The Assembly elections, the results are still coming through, and it looks like Sinn Féin has the largest first preference votes in the Assembly because we're, uh, we operate under a PRSTV system as opposed to first-past-the-post. So Sinn Féin looks like the largest party, or looks set to be the largest party in the Assembly, which is a pretty historic moment. We've never had a nationalist party emerge as the largest party in the Assembly or the Stormont Parliament that preceded it. So that's historic for that reason alone. But of course, these elections are also very important for the future of devolved government here, because a large part of that future will depend on the way the protocol works, in including Article 2. So can we go into Article 2 now? What are the rights of Article 2 of the protocol, and how does it commit the government to observing these rights? So Article 2 essentially is a non-diminution a guarantee. And what that effectively means is that the state of equality and non-discrimination law that existed in Northern Ireland before Brexit and 
that exists as between Northern Ireland and the EU cannot be diminished as a result of Brexit. So there are two strands to this. The first is a sort of negative bar, if you like, that equality law in Northern Ireland can't be reduced relative to the EU. But there's also a positive implication in that, that any time the EU amends or replaces its existing equality directives and regulations, those have automatic effect in Northern Ireland without actually going through any further legislative process. So it, it's quite a far-reaching provision. It's also the a key of EU law, uh, as in the case law, the accumulated case law of the EU that will still apply in Northern Ireland as a result of this Article 2. What's the mechanism whereby it continues to apply to Northern Irish citizens? Well, first of all, it's directly effective in, in, in the same way that retained EU law or bits of retained EU law might continue to have direct effect or had direct effect uh, for a certain period of time in respect of the whole of the UK following Brexit. But we will continue to have direct effect in Northern Ireland for that part of the EU key that relates to equality and non-discrimination. That's one side of it. So EU law in, in that sort of limited capacity can be directly relied on in any litigation relating to Northern Ireland. The second aspect is that the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and the Equality Commission for Northern Ireland are both under various statutory duties to advise the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and to monitor the effectiveness of the Article 2 guarantee so that they really have to look at the evolving field of the EU key and see if a difference arises or if a divergence arises between the state of the law in Northern Ireland and the state of the law in the EU, and then advise the Secretary of State and advise various bodies, including the Assembly, of what to do next. This is quite a big ask for these bodies. What needs to be established to show that there has been a breach of this commitment and a reduction of rights? So recently, there have been two cases in the Northern Ireland High Court relating to Article 2 and that sort of non-diminution guarantee. And it's the second one which is more detailed. And it's the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children's Application for Judicial Review. And this was in respect of the recently made changes to abortion law in Northern Ireland. Of course, we don't yet have abortion services commissioned but the law had changed so that it's no longer a criminal offence and women don't have to travel to Britain when they need an abortion. So the society, the SPUC, took out a challenge against these regulations providing for the commissioning of abortion services in Northern Ireland. One of their grounds was based on Article 2 of the protocol in the sense that it infringed disability rights, and in particular, disability rights in respect of EU law. Now, the High Court in that case said that in order to make that point, one would have to locate the right in EU law 
that is said to be diminished as a result of provision or a legal change in, in Northern Ireland law. So it has to be underpinned. First of all, it has to be found somewhere within EU law itself. Incidentally, in SPUC, the ground failed because abortion is not one of the competences of the EU. And so it, it, it's left to member states to largely have their own legal provisions. And some are more restrictive, some are less restrictive. So the ground failed in that front. But what it set out in the judgment was an important test that you you can't simply have this ground unless you can hang it on a particular EU legal provision that existed before the withdrawal agreement came into force. So that's the first ground that needs to be established for reliance on Article 2. You then have to establish that there has been a diminution in the actual right in Northern Ireland. So there has to be a corresponding impact on people's ability to rely on the previous state of law. So previously, EU law would have applied, as it indeed did throughout the entire European Union, to Northern Ireland equally as it did everywhere else. So you have to show that as a result of Brexit, as a result of some sort of legal change brought about either by um, the UK Parliament, the UK government, or the Northern Ireland authorities, because of Brexit and because of the corresponding legal change, there is now a difference between the state of EU law and the state of law in Northern Ireland. So those two points need to be hit as well. And of course, within the wider sort of framework of the rights, safeguards, and equality of opportunity provisions in the Good Friday Agreement, which are quite broad, but of themselves are not legally incorporated into domestic law. I gather from what you've said and what I've read about the protocol is that it's not all the directives relating to equality and and rights and so on that are included in Article 2. It's specific directives. And rather to my surprise, Article 2 doesn't incorporate the Charter on Fundamental Rights and Freedoms, the EU Charter. Is that correct? Yes. So it's only six directives under Annex 1 of the protocol. Most of them really are relating to sort of classic non-discrimination provisions in the EU key. So provisions relating to gender inequality in work, whether that's employment or self-employment, or provisions relating to racial discrimination, for example. So yeah, very much a narrow, tailored, specific aspects of the EU key. And yes, you're right, it doesn't actually incorporate the charter. And of course, there's the EU withdrawal Act of 2018 says the Charter is no longer part of domestic law in the UK. But there's some, I would say, qualification of that statement because that same Act in in 2020 was amended to insert a provision that says everything has to be interpreted subject to the withdrawal agreement of which the protocol is a part. And because the protocol directly applies EU law to Northern Ireland, or rather the protocol mandates the direct effect be given to it, there is an argument to be had that the Charter continues to apply in 
not just a sort of interpretational backdrop capacity to how to interpret that non-diminution guarantee, but actually applies in a fundamental substantive capacity because the protocol and indeed the withdrawal agreement also say that when you're talking about how to interpret EU law, it is going to be interpreted in accordance with the principles of interpretation of EU law of which the charter is a part. So it's, as with many things Brexit-related, I'm sure, it's absolutely not a black and white situation. But that's where, I suppose, the interesting aspects of it come forward. It's a very new provision, and it's unlike anything we've, we've come across before. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with it as, as the years go by. We all understand that the DUP is very much opposed to the protocol. What do you think the future is of the protocol in relation to the current results of the elections and Article 2 in particular? Well, it's interesting, actually, because votes are still being counted. So the results are going to be coming in even today. But yesterday, as the counting of the votes began, and it emerged that the DUP had suffered significant setbacks in in various constituencies, and Sinn Féin would emerge as the largest party in the Assembly. Several statements from not just the DUP, but other unionist parties were to the effect that there will be no devolved government unless the protocol goes in its entirety. And I'm not sure that enough conversation has been had about the fact that there are aspects of the protocol which are permanent. It isn't simply the fact that Article uh, 18 of the protocol, for example, which provides for the so-called storm and consent process. So every four to eight years, the Northern Ireland Assembly can have a vote on whether to apply the single market and goods provisions of the protocol or to disapply them. But that vote only speaks to those provisions. So articles five to 10 of the protocol, the single market provisions. It doesn't speak to the rest of the protocol. And article two, of course, is outside of that part. So even if in 2023 or 2024, whenever the the, the first vote is scheduled, the assembly says, no, we don't want the protocol anymore. It's not that we don't want the protocol anymore. The effect of it is articles five to 10 are disapplied and process begins for renegotiating something else between the UK and the EU for ensuring something on the island of Ireland that doesn't disrupt, you know, sort of cross-border traffic. I'm not sure what that is, to be honest. I don't, I I would hazard a guess that the uh, original negotiating teams have no idea what that would look like, but it doesn't disapply Article 2. So we are still tied to the EU a key as far as it applies and tied not just in, in, in a static sort of frozen snapshot sense, but in, a, in an evolving sense, because what the protocol actually provides for is that those six directives that continue to apply to us, if they are amended or replaced by the EU, the amended or replaced versions of those automatically apply. So there's no further role in that process for either the Assembly or Parliament or the UK government or anybody for that matter. They just apply. So I'm not sure that we've had enough 
debate and discussion in terms of what the protocol actually means in reality going forward and, and its permanent nature for political demands like this or political red lines like these to be made with any sense of conviction or reality. I, I certainly don't see that the protocol is going to go either in the short or medium term in that sense. As it dawns on opponents of the protocol, and I'm thinking of DUP voters in particular, that not only are they being subject to EU-style trade requirements, but horror of horrors, (laughs) they're being subjected to the EU collective jurisprudence on rights. I mean, it doesn't seem to be part of the conversation that's going on in Belfast at the moment. No, and I wish it was because it's it's the the thing about equality law and non discrimination law in Northern Ireland is <laughs> we haven't made any of it ourselves. It's piecemeal. It's 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 a patchwork system. There's no the Equality Act of 2010 doesn't actually apply in its entirety to us. It never has. Bits of it do, and bits of the sort of previous Equality Acts, particularly those relating to sexual orientation discrimination, they don't apply as they apply in in Britain, but versions of them were also enacted at Westminster to apply to us. So all of this happened either at a time when the assembly wasn't functional, so the UK government had responsibility for Northern Ireland and the UK parliament continued to legislate for Northern Ireland, or indeed were passed at Westminster simply because the issues were too divisive to be agreed in Northern Ireland. I mean, one of the enduring demands of the Good Friday Agreement, and indeed civic society here, is for a Bill of Rights. At the time the Good Friday Agreement came about, of course, the Human Rights Act was still a bill in the UK Parliament. And so part of the Good Friday Agreement says that the UK government shall complete the process of incorporating the Convention, but also provides for having a Bill of Rights that is enforceable and that binds the Northern Ireland Assembly in terms of its legislative competence and what sort of laws it can't enact. And I think the conversation around Article 2 is useful in that respect because here we are almost a quarter century after the Good Friday Agreement with no Bill of Rights. And quite frankly, the last time we tried to have one was late of last year when a dispute arose as to the people appointed to advise on a Bill of Rights, not even the content of a Bill of Rights, but you know the people appointed to advise on it, the, the academics and, and experts appointed to advise. And so it, it's such a frustrating conversation to keep going around that I wish we were talking more about the fact that Article 2 has the potential to be quite a good safety net when it comes to evolving considerations in equality law, because I'm not entirely certain that the Assembly is going to miraculously come up with a Bill of Rights just because its composition changed in, in, in an election. But also that there is, in, in, in terms of the political conversation happening, not only is there a need to appreciate how the protocol functions and, and, and what the Article 2 guarantees are, but also because they're directly effective, these are provisions that can be used by people directly in litigation that have, in, in terms of issues that impacts them. So it's an empowering provision. 
So it's not just politics and the constitutional question. It's also about people. And I really, really wish that we were having more of a conversation around it. I think that's a very good place on which to conclude. I will put on our blog post that will be on the blog to accompany this episode all the directives that you refer to and the two cases that we discussed earlier in the interview. And, well, thank you again for coming on LawPod UK. Thank you so much. LawPod UK is presented by Rosalind English and produced by One Crown Office Row.